from St. Paul's epistle to the Colossians, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. I have a personal milestone to share with you today. I've not preached in five weeks. That's a record for me. So thank you to Father Gritter, Father Waldhauser, Father Switz for carrying through the last five weeks. I've been here, except for one Sunday, but I've had a chance to sort of uh, back up a little bit, spend some time looking at the world around me, spending some time in study, and noticing something really important over the past couple of weeks, and it's this, that I think our culture, and this has been going on for a while, we are increasingly becoming more and more divided. I think the Roe versus Wade decision was a big part of it, and then also the Supreme Court's decision about guns, but it's bigger than that. It's inflation, it's the economy, it's Ukraine, all sorts of things. And the problem is that not only are tensions high, can we all agree on that, by the way? Uh, that not only are tensions high, but we're at each other's throats. And that's not good. That's really not good for a democracy. You know, these sorts of questions that we debate are, used, to be, used to be called discourse. It used to be the idea of trying to sit with somebody and discuss with them and maybe, maybe agree, God forbid, agree to disagree. Remember, the, remember those days? That's all gone. Now it's not about debate and discussion, but annihilation, destroying our enemy. We talk past each other. And this isn't just in, in our culture, in our families we do this too. We talk past each other, and there's a reason for it. And the reason is because we start, listen, we start from fundamentally different places. We, as Christians and non-Christians, live in two different worlds with different assumptions about how the world works. The word for that is the word worldview. And it's basically in a, a set of assumptions you make to make sense of the world, i.e. a worldview. There's a biblical worldview. The Bible describes how the world works. And there is a secular, and I would say intrinsically atheistic view of the world. And uh, unless you're surprised, this is absolutely nothing new. This, uh, this, uh, this debate, this increased tension between the church and the world, it's nothing new. This tension between a biblical worldview and a secular atheistic worldview is nothing new. And I'll prove it to you because Paul writes his letter to the Colossians, which we're going to study for the next four weeks, and the church of Coloss was going through the exact same problems that we are. And what Paul is, is driving at is how does the church, how do y'all, how do we... How do we wrestle with a culture which sees things from a different planet than we do? How do we live in a culture which is very different from the way in which we actually live and think and, and manage our lives? How do we function as Christians in a, as strangers in a strange land and getting increasingly stranger? So we're going to spend the next four weeks walking through this epistle to the Colossians. And, and let me just caution you, if it seems like word salad to you, because Paul is so dense, when you read it once, spend some time, and it's not difficult, spend some time, go back and reread it, spend a week reading Colossians. It's only four chapters, you can read it in 15 minutes. But walk through Colossians, we're going to spend some time here talking about how does the church deal with a culture which is radically at odds with what we believe. And we're going to start today in the beginning, with the question of a world view. 
Paul lays it out. The basis of a Christian and biblical worldview, and he does it in three points. First thing is Jesus is the image of God, hugely important. Secondly, Jesus is the creator of all things. And then finally, Jesus is our glory. So how does the church, how does the church and the world differ? Well, we see things differently, and they're based on three things. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, point one. Point two, Jesus is the creator of all things. And then finally, Jesus is our glory. So before we jump into this Colossians study, uh, let's just talk a little bit about Colossae. Where is it? It's in modern-day Turkey. And it's not, I don't think it's even there anymore, but at one point it was a big deal. Coloss was like, a, like New York City or Los Angeles today. Nobody, you move there to be, make a name for yourself, right? So, so like any big city then or now, there's people from all around the world, all around the country and around the world, and which means that Coloss, like New York or Los Angeles or other places, Miami maybe, it's multicultural, it's multi-ethnic, it's multi-religious, not at all unlike us today. Debating and fighting and arguing with one another. Rumor is that J. Bar- J. Joy Behar's great-great-great-great-grandmother had a talk show there at one point. No, she didn't. I'm just kidding. But I wanted to see, point out here that just kind of dial in on what's going on here because it, it's really applicable to us today. In this stew of opinion and divergent w- ways of seeing the world, there's this nascent little group of Christians. And as always happens, then or now, the church, when it's in a culture which is radically different from what we see, begins to sort of slide a little bit. Prove it to you. Just this past week, the, uh, the Episcopal Church concluded the general convention. It was only four days long this year. Thank you, Jesus, because they can't get much done in four days. But the Episcopal Church finished its general convention, and there was a resolution, I'm not kidding about this, presented which would decry, forget, forget the exact word, but we'll say decry, dec- it would decry all crisis pregnancy centers around the country. That was the resolution, a, a, complete, a condemnation against all crisis pregnancy centers, all of them. That was the resolution which was discussed, and thankfully it failed. Right. But the point stands, and here's what I want you to see. The point stands then and now that sometimes the church, the church is not immune to the culture in which we live. The church is always in a, in a struggle of not trying to be witnesses in, in, a, in our culture, but also not falling prey to it. And so the key, what what Paul's driving at this morning, is we have to know what we believe and why. Why we believe it. That's called a biblical worldview. And Paul launches in verse 15 with the the very foundations. It's It's a progressive argument. But the very foundation of a Christian and biblical worldview is this. Point one, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He says it. Verse 15. Look at it if you want. It's the first verse you have there. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Let's just stop. That is loaded. The image of the invisible God. It's the word ikos, icon. And an ikos is something which represents something which you can't actually see. There's a, there's a reality behind it. And Paul says Jesus is the icon, the image of God himself, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. 
And friends, that is the core and the premise of a Christian worldview, that Jesus is God. He is the firstborn of all creation, and that he made everything. Now, what does that mean? Well, I remember once, one of my kids, I think it was Katie, but it might not have been, one of them, one of the girls was, was reading a story over at, at their school. It was, a, it was in the Iroquois or the Lenape or some Indian tribe that had a, their, the idea was that they believed that, there's, that the world was on the back of a turtle. And, and it lived on the back of a turtle. And so Katie was telling me about this. That, no, Dad, we, lo- we learned that the Iroquois or whatever it was that believed that the earth rested on the back of a turtle. I said, oh, okay, Katie. I said, that's interesting. I said, well, what's under that turtle? And she said, another turtle. I said, okay, well, what's under that turtle? And she said, another turtle. I said, what's under that turtle? She says, dad, another turtle. And then she looks at me and she says, dad, it's just turtles all the way down. (laughs) Now think about that for a second. If creation is an infinite regress, if I lose you, just bear with me for a second. If creation is an infinite regress, there really are just turtles all the way down, you'd never get to the present. Logically, there has to be a starting point. There must be a starting point to all creation. Thomas Aquinas had this great line. It stuck with me for years. Aquinas defines God as the uncaused cause. All that's to say, you've got to start somewhere. And the Bible says that somewhere is Jesus. Listen, Jesus is the boom in the Big Bang. He is the prime mover, the old argument, the first mover, the first action of all creation. He is the one who created everything, the stars and galaxies and tadpoles and quarks. He's the beginning. He says this about himself in Revelation 22:13. Jesus says, I never thought about this before this way until this week. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. He starts creation and he finishes it. That's the biblical view, the first point of it, the biblical view of creation. Let me give you an example. When I was in graduate school, some of you know this, I uh, was studying industrial psychology, but I taught statistics and scientific research methods in graduate school. It's actually what made me a Christian, come to say. But if you don't know this, the job of science is to discover scientific laws, to uncover patterns in the world around us, to discover what underlies the created order so that we can predict it and build stuff, like bridges and, and, you know, hot water heaters and whatever. And it occurred to me as I'm teaching this class, I'm 23 years old, teaching other 23-year-olds, it occurred to me, listen, if you're going to study a scientific law, listen, there must be a law giver. If you're going to posit a law underneath it all that carries all creation, you're trying to discover this law, there has to be a lawgiver. Something has to hold it all together, and Paul says that. And that something must have volition, it must have a conscience, it must have a will, and it must have power to make galaxies and all sorts of different things. And that's something, that uncaused cause, that prime mover, according to Scripture, according to a Christian worldview, is Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation, Paul says. That means two different things. He's the creator, the uncaused cause, and he also has 
uh, status as the first being before all other things. He has priority over everything because he created it and he created it for himself. And that's my first point, that God, that, that Jesus is God. And the second point I want to talk about is that Jesus is the creator of all things. Let me stop there and just say one thing. When your friends say, and I said this when I was younger and more naive and didn't know what I was talking about. When I said, uh, I don't believe in religion, I believe in science. That's a stupid thing to say. I know now. Because the reality is if Christianity isn't true, you can't have science. If Christianity is not true, you cannot have science. Look at it like this. Fundamentally, you only have really two ways to see the world around you. You only have two options, and it's simple if you think of it this way. There's only two options. Either creation is one great big random accident, a series of unplanned events, that's option one, or option two, someone, God, ordered it. That's all there is. It's either ordered or it's not. It's either structured and designed by a designer, a creator, or it's just random events that happen to just fall into place. And, and if you're thinking, oh, come on. Well, think of it like this. Say you walked out this morning to come to church at quarter after seven, and you open the front door, and there in your driveway is a shiny, blue, metallic blue BMW M4 with a sports package. Zero to 60 in 3.8 seconds. Yes, I want one. Uh, you only have two options. You've only got two. Someone built it, or it just happened to fall into place randomly. Every little atom and every little structure just kind of happened to fall there overnight. I mean, it would take billions of years, potentially, I suppose you could say. But everything had to fall into place perfectly, and it just happened randomly. Those are your only two options. Someone built it, or it just created randomly. So the question is, which is it? And I'll submit this to you, the creation is a lot more complicated than an M4. The blood cells in your body, I don't know how many there are, say a million, I don't know how many. One blood cell in your body is more, is a greater feat of engineering than an M4. So design demands a designer. Creation requires a creator, otherwise it's just random events. And if that's true, you've got to ask yourself a question. Are you a cosmic accident? Because if there's no God, then guess what? That is precisely what you are, a random series of cells that just happen to be sitting in your seat at this moment. Ask yourself this question. Even if you want to take a highbrow view of a skeptical scientist guy, which I played that role for a while. I don't believe in science. Well, hang on. So do you believe that you're a cosmic accident? Do you believe that you are just a random series of events? Well, you know, okay, let's change it a little bit. Do you believe that your children or your parents are just a random collection of cells that through mere chance happen to just be organize themselves into beings? Or is the world around you designed and structured, has purpose and will and value? So I got news for you. If there's no God and you are just a random series of events, your life has no intrinsic value. See, friends, here's the thing. Christian secular atheist types, and this is the culture we're moving into rapidly. They could say there's no God, point one. Oh, I don't believe in God. They could say there's no creator. 
But you know how you know what people really believe? It's how they actually live. Nobody actually believes, nobody actually lives that way. The people they tell you that you are crazy for believing in God, they say stuff to make you feel stupid and be a highbrow skeptic. Oh, I don't need that religious nonsense. But you know what? Nobody actually lives that way, and I'll prove it to you. There's one guy who I talk about a lot, and it's not Joel Olstein, <laughs> though I do talk about him a lot too. There's one guy I talk about a lot. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche, 19th century psychopath, I mean philosopher. Friedrich Nietzsche, I will tell, I'll be honest with you, uh, when I was a younger man, I read some Nietzsche, not that I was really interested in it, but I was fascinated by it because it terrifies me. And here's why. Friedrich Nietzsche was a famous 19th century German atheist, and he at least, had, he's the guy that coined the phrase, God is dead. Reminds me of a funny bumper sticker uh, Paul Agassi showed me once, and it had a bumper sticker that said, God is dead, Nietzsche. And then underneath it said, Nietzsche is dead, God. So... But I will tell you, as discomforting Nietzsche's thought process is, I have to say I admire the guy for having the guts to take secular atheist, atheism to its logical conclusion. And he says this, if there is no God, God is dead, he asserts, then there is no morality, no right and wrong. He says that too. He has a book called Beyond Good and Evil. And think about it. If there's no God, there is no right and wrong. There is no good and evil. And if there's no God and no right and wrong and no good and evil, there is nothing to stop you from doing what you want except someone else stopping you. It is Darwinian survival of the fittest applied to the human condition. If you're the fittest, then you take it. And if you're not the fittest, then you give it up. See my point? He says this. Nietzsche says this. He called it the will to power. It sounds so, so uh, I don't know, strong and Marvel character kind of thing. The will to power. It's terrifying. I'll try, he would say, essentially, might, might makes right. You do what you do because you can unless somebody stops you. Without God, as a secular atheist, all you have in human interaction is power. A couple of weeks ago, you may have heard the story about um, Justice Kavanaugh having dinner at Morton's Steakhouse with his family in D.C. Never been to the one in D.C., but I do like Morton's Steakhouse, I'll tell you. He's in there eating dinner with his family, and he has to flee out the back door because a mob out front organized themselves and demanded that Kavanaugh be brought out. For what? Take a guess. Why is this celebrated? Why is this considered normal? Why did not even senior politicians in our government condemn the action? I'll tell you why. Because if your worldview says that God is dead, then might makes right. See, friends, according to a biblical worldview, but according to a biblical worldview, Nietzsche is wrong. Not only is he wrong, he's a psychopath. Sure, you might say might makes right. That sounds, that sounds good, the will to power, as long as you're the one with the power. And it's not, sure, might makes right and the will to power, but you're the one who's using it to serve your own ends. We see this in our culture, and it's coming at us. Watch for it. It's not even debate anymore. It's annihilation. It's power. It's control. It's domination. But friends, if Jesus is in fact the image of the invisible God, 
and he is the creator of all things, then might makes right is a lie because God is not dead. Listen, as a Christian, when you look at the culture and you think to yourself, why in the world do people think these things are okay? When you're shocked, when you have the news on or you read the Wall Street Journal or anything these days, it's, it's, it's devolving very quickly. When you look at you say, how in the world do people think this way? Well, the reason they think that way is because they think it's okay. Their worldview is radically different from yours because they live in a world without God. Because fundamentally, and they would never admit this because they've never thought about it, they believe that life was a cosmic accident and there is no right and wrong. But friends, we as the church, we live under the belief that God is real and his name is Jesus. Under a world that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation and the creator of all things. That he is the uncaused cause. And then finally, we see if that's true, that the church, us Christians, are his glory. Look at this again. Um, after Paul lays out this worldview in verses 15 through 20, he says in verse 21 something really important. Lest you think that somehow, or I, for that matter, think that somehow we're better than everybody else because we're right and they're wrong, if you want to go that far, and I will. Paul writes, and you, and it's second person plural, y'all, and you guys who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's talking to the church now. He's talking to us. And you, Paul, who were, and you all who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you by his death on the cross to present you, y'all, holy and blameless before him. See, friends, the, the marvel in all of this is that, like everybody else, like the people that we watch and look at on TV and go, holy smokes, what's going on here? We were once that person. We were once alienated from God. Lord knows that I was. Paul doesn't say some of you. He says all of you were alienated from God. But we have been reconciled to God by Jesus' death on the cross in our place. Amen? And to quote, and we can look at the world now from a perspective not of pride and judgment, but of humility because we've been reconciled by Christ's death on the cross. I'll give you an illustration of this. It's a famous hymn which is sung all the time, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. You know, this, you know the hymn, right? You've heard it before? Well, it was written by a slave trader. His name is John Newton. Ironically, there's a John Newton at 8 o'clock Mass this morning. Not that John Newton, a different John Newton. This John Newton was a guy who was a slave trader in England. And he was out in the ocean, and the storm arose, and they were terrified they were going to get washed over decks. And Newton, who knew he was a dirtbag and knew he was seeing the world through the power lens of might makes right, he's a slave trader after all. But then he realized in that moment on that boat, that he'd been saved by Jesus. And listen to what he says. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's the key. Friends, he is calling you and I, Jesus is calling you and I to be his witnesses on earth. To engage our culture, not in vitriol, not in hate, but in love. To engage our culture, not because we hate them, but because we love them. Because we want to see them brought to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because we were once blind and now we see. Let me encourage you. Be patient. Be encouraged. 
be kind, even when the other side's not. You know, Father Gritter mentioned last week in his sermon that we are called to love our enemies. And that sounds like a contradiction in terms, except it's not, and I'll show you why. You know, when when Jesus says, love your enemies, let's just be honest, that we don't like, I don't like everybody, and neither do you. I don't trust everybody, and neither do you. Fair enough? That's not what it means. He doesn't say like your enemies, he says love them. What does that mean? It's a Greek word, agape, and it means to put the needs of someone else ahead of your own, even when you don't like them. The way you love your enemies is by doing kind things to them, even when they don't deserve it, even when they don't unkind things for you. Pray for your enemies. Because, friends, you and I were once in their shoes, alienated from God, but we've been reconciled to him through Jesus. So live that way. Let the way you debate and argue and discuss reflect the fact that you were there once and God has saved you. And the the goal in all of our interaction with non-believing people, with atheists, no matter whatever crazy stuff they do, our goal is to bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Live like you mean it. Live like you believe it. Because you do. More about that next week. So we pray, Father, we thank you for Jesus, the prime mover, the uncaused cause, the purpose and meaning and structure behind everything, who created us, who created all mankind in his image, and who calls us to live in a culture very different from our own. Lord, help us to have hearts of compassion on those who are in error, to live our lives as beacons of hope and show the truth of your son Jesus in the way that we live, even when the world treats us poorly. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.